Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives. Top of the morning to all you trend followers out there. We're digging in deep with one of the longest tenured trend followers around in today's episode. Trend appears to be coming back in a big way with bonds selling off and commodities taking off. And we've got John Krautsack, chairman and CEO of EMC Capital, who's been trend following in one manner or another with clients hard-earned money since 1985. I was 11. Wow. Uh, so how do you stick around that long in the cutthroat hedge fund world? How do you stick with trend following through all its fits and starts over the years? We're finding out. Send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's new white paper on, wait for it, trend following. Almost like we planned that. Check the link in the show notes or go to rcmalts.com and right up top on the menu there, click education, then white papers to download the newest paper where we get into what trend following is, why it tends to work in inflationary environments, why commodity exposure mostly sucks, unless you do it smartly via trend, uh, and highlights on five trend managers we recommend. Many of them have been on the pod here, so you'll recognize the names. So go check it out today uh, and let us know what you think. Now, back to the show. Okay, we are here with the main man at EMC Capital Advisors, John Krautsack. How are you, John? Hey, good. Good to see you. Um, good to see you as well. Yeah. Hopefully we're warming up here and you're in the northern Chicago suburbs, right? That's right. Yep. So hopefully we're done with the winter, but I think it's supposed to snow like a foot on Thursday, right? Jeez, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's start off a little background. So you started as a clerk in the S&P pit. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Um, I had a I had a good friend of mine whose uh, brother-in-law worked as a, a, a friend of mine whose brother-in-law was a big S&P trader, a big local trader in the pit. And he asked if uh, I wanted to go down to the mercantile exchange with them. And so I uh, I headed down there with them and uh, you know, we went down, we got onto the floor. I've never been on the floor before in the, this is in the eighties. Um, and just total chaos in my eyes. Um, his brother-in-law comes rambling out of the pit. We go up to the Merc club for lunch. The guy's not even paying attention to us. He's looking at his cards, looking at the ticker. Um, finally he, uh, he looks across the table and he, tosses me his trading cards and he's like you know count my position he's like buy side on one side sell side on the other so i go through his cards and i'm like uh you know you're you're long 80 s p big contracts and uh he, he just he looks at me he goes you want to work for me i wasn't even looking for a job i would i i just was going down there and meet him so it was a really a, a, a lucky start into the business yeah, for those watching on YouTube, I'll show a little, right? This was basically the trading card, just a simple two by two grid, right? And then I bought five, I sold 10, I bought five. Um, and then I was a clerk down in the bond pit. And then our job was to go find the, right? To match up. Okay, you did those 10. Make sure get the other guy's little piece of paper. Um, That's right. And, and because he was such a large trader, my role was to literally get into the pit and I was probably one of the only clerks that was in the bottom of the pit for the whole day 
just getting cards from him and giving him his position because he was traded. He just traded such huge size. He needed a count like continually all throughout the day. And then I'd, I'd move about in the pit and match the trades with guys who you know, who, who traded with them because he was just so crazy. And tell the listeners if you can, what the, uh, what that trading floor was like. I always say people would lose their minds if they saw the amount of paper on the floor, which we just talked about a little bit, but, um, how do you describe it to people who, who never got that experience? Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, a, a, a sporting event where, you know, the bigger, the bigger the guy is, the stronger the guy is. I mean, you'd have so many people packed into these pits that if one guy swayed, the whole row of guys would sway. And uh, uh, yeah, and, and the paper all over the place, the phone clerks would be shooting cards out to, uh, to, the, to the brokers on the, you know, it was just, it was, it, it was crazy. I know the first couple of days working down there, I was, you know, I was so exhausted coming home on the train. Just, it, it was just really intense. Yeah, I always said I didn't make it. You'd get like dip spit spilled on you, fist fights every day. It was, it was the Wild West to be sure. It um, really was. What you got any, what was your craziest story from one of the, on the pit days? Well, one of my, one of my favorite stories is, uh, uh, there's this one big local trader in the pit and uh, he would just over trade and just get himself into, into trouble. So one day he shows up in the pit and, you know, if you want to do big size, a uh, hundred lots or whatever, you got your hands over your head. So he showed up in, in the pit and he had a shoestring and he tied his wrist <laughs> to his belt loop. So he couldn't get his hands over his head to, to over trade. And I, I just thought that was so funny. I mean, just all sorts of so crazy he, But things. he could still do a bunch of fives with the one hand. He just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, so there's so many stories down there. I mean, that was, that really was a, it, it's wild that, you know, business gets accomplished down there. It's just, you know, with so much chaos. It, it doesn't seem like uh it would be that organized, but right. And then clerks like you and me back in the day, right. And I'm showing up at 6am to go meet the other clerks and settle trades, out trades. Little did I know, like there are millions of dollars, right. Of like, Oh, we're missing a 20 lot in bonds. And it's from two basis points higher or something. Um, yeah. I remember right before uh black Monday, like that, that morning, um, my the guy I was working for he was he was out a whole bunch of contracts and i was and he wasn't even in town he was he was in arizona and i was running around trying to square him up before that opening and that chaos and you know giving myself a heart attack doing it right you know? i finally got a hold of him and he he left a couple of his cards in his pocket in his jacket pocket didn't you know didn't turn those cards in so uh, he was square but i didn't know that you know <laughs> so you run around for no reason and so moving on a little bit of the firm background so emc was founded by elizabeth cheval uh who is one of the original turtles right that's correct yeah yeah and so we've covered the turtle program on here before 
Uh, we'll put a link to our pod with Jerry Parker in there. You can learn more about it. Uh, so don't need to go too deep into that. Um, but if you could like give us the personal side of Liz, what she was like, how she viewed the markets, kind of what you learned from her as you were getting into the biz. Yeah, I think, um, number one, she was, she was a wonderful person. She was, she was probably the best listener I've ever met in my life. I mean, she, she could meet the janitor and the janitor could tell her what she's, what, what he's interested in. And she would go and like buy a book and give him a book about like that particular subject. She, she always wrote letters. She, you know, she was just her, uh, her attention to detail was unbelievable. Um, but I think probably one of the, the best things I, I learned from her is, um, is her discipline with, with this systematic style, that, the, the quantitative side of, uh, of how we do, how we research, how we, you know, don't change the portfolio just because things aren't working. All those disciplines to our, to our style um, it is really what I learned. I think that's why we've been around for so long is because we've been so disciplined with when we're back testing our models, making sure that we're not overfitting, over optimizing our strategy. Those disciplines, she she constantly wanted us to replicate what our research was producing. And then what did she, what was her background before joining the turtle program? So she, uh, she had a, 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 I think a math degree. Um, so, you know, she just, you know, she responded to that ad and I think it was only, it was her and just one other person who, who, um, uh, one other woman who, who, uh, chosen. Yeah. The, uh, and then tragically she died What's it been 10 years or so, um, while on a business yeah. trip in China, right? That's correct. Yeah. She, she was there to, you know, we started using our models and testing, um, testing our models on Chinese commodity markets and it, the performance coming out of those markets was just fantastic. So she was, she was pitching, uh, a, a, a Chinese guy who owned an FCM basically pitching, you know, how we started trading money for Morgan Stanley as an FCM. And then, you know, how they grew that whole managed futures business out. Um, so she trying to form a partnership and yeah. uh, she went into the meeting and uh, she had brain aneurysm before really the meeting even started. Huh. So that yeah. was in 2013. 2013. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to happier topics, but, um, her, her spirit lives on in the firm, right? Oh, so, it really does. And so you guys have been running the classic program since 1985. Is that right? That's New, correct. Wow. 40 years. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty about your programs and all that, just let me ask sort of like, uh, ask a married couple that had been more, married for 40 years. What's, what's the secret? What's well, CMC's secret for having been around so long, right? There's probably been 40,000 hedge fund firms that have launched and died in those 40 years. Yeah, I, I really think the secret is, is our discipline, our, our entire team's discipline to our researching, 
to sticking with our, our models. Um, I think that's the most important thing because it's so easy when you're a quantitative firm to, if things aren't working, you start changing it to what, what, you know, the market's doing at, at this current time. And, and, you know, I, I think we see that currently that there's a lot of, you know, we were in a, in a 40 year bull uh, bond market, uh, bull stock market. And it's very easy. You know, there's a lot of firms who, who basically have like this long only element in their portfolios. Now um, I think, you know, our discipline, there's some tough times um, not too long ago in the commodity markets, no big trends going on. Um, it's very easy to, to want to, kick those markets out of your portfolio. It's very easy uh, to want to change your models for trading those strategies. And we just stay disciplined with the way we re research, the way we run our optimizations. We stay disciplined with the diversification in our portfolio, whether that's with markets or with systems. Um, and I think I really believe that that is the reason why we've been around so long because when it's time to, for managed futures to perform, we usually perform. The, uh, and that's interesting. It's usually people hear discipline, right? And I'm thinking like, oh, I only risk so much on a trade and I don't, right, I don't get crazy on the risk side. And that's why we've been around so long because we don't blow up. So that's also true, but it seems more like you're saying, no, discipline to stick to our knitting um, within a framework of your evolving and whatnot. But Right. It, all too easy. Like I did a uh, we did a blog post on silver trend following silver. And I think it had 19 straight false breakouts over the, like 11 <laughs> years. Right. Like nothing. And then last year had this big move or it might have been, been 2020, but it had this big move. It finally paid out. Um, so that's the discipline you're talking about. Right. Of like in order to take that losing trade over and over and over, knowing at some point it's going to pay out. Absolutely. That obviously that was, you mentioned silver and, oh man, we wanted to kick that market out <laughs> of our portfolio. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I also mean the discipline of, of, you know, it's all embedded in our, in our optimization process, the, the risk you take per trade, the weightings of each market, uh, you know, your, your correlations between each market, everything is built into that research optimization process. So sticking with, you know, uh, the quantities that you're supposed to buy, I, it's, you know, the disciplines of taking, you know, putting on trades at, you know, you buying it at all time new highs or selling at lows. Yeah. That's a very hard thing to do. The, um, and what piece of advice would you give to some startup guys of eyeing that longevity, right? Of like, it's so hard because if I'm a startup, if I don't have the, the assets behind me, if I don't have the perhaps your guys track record and, you know, capital built up, it's going to be way more tempting to pivot and say, we got to stop trading this. We're going to go out of business. We're going to lose our clients. Right. So how do you kind of weigh those two things? If I'm a startup hedge fund wanting that longevity? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's um, that's what's so hard about it is that, um, you know, you, got, you have to make sure that you're, you have a good research process and you, you stick to that process. Um, 
even even through hard times and I, I agree with you it's it, that's a tough hurdle right now and the cost of just running yeah. uh, a, a business right now the the, the, the price you know the, the costs uh, of exchange fees and and um, uh, getting live live quotes and getting enormous amount of data like we paid so much money for data um, so it's there's a big hurdle there's a big hurdle for sure. And that's been a refrain on this podcast for a long time of like, hey, what if you have the choice, go out of business or change your model, most everyone's going to change their model, right? They don't want to go out of business. That's right. That's but exactly from an, right. From an investor, I appreciate the, right, I'd rather have you sticking in one lane, so to speak, right? Of like, hey, I know what I'm going to get with these guys. I'm allocating. This is the profile they're going to, right? If you start changing all this stuff, then as an investor, I, I lose confidence in that, not knowing what I'm going to get. That's exactly right, and and we've seen that we've seen that with other managers. Uh, all of a sudden, turn into you know, turn into a completely different trader, and um, you know, we owe it to our investors. I mean, we we have two large investors who've been in the classic program one since 1989, and wow. another since 1991. So uh, um, they know what they're getting from us. Yeah, and they've probably that's compounded rather nicely, right? <laughs> sure has. So let's dig into these strategies a little bit. Uh, the classic program that we mentioned, uh, the core of that is trend following, right? That's correct. Yeah, we kind of bucket it in two, in two areas. We do a technical trend following. We have two core systems uh, that are under that. And then we have uh, two systems that are more statistical momentum. We're trying to capture the same, you know, big outlier moves, whether up or down, um, but we categorize them just a little bit different. Uh, and expand on that. So, what's the difference between that momentum signal and the trend following signal? Like a breakout versus a relative value? Yeah, um, we don't do really breakout anymore. Um, you know, that 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 whole style degraded, you know, quite yeah. a bit. Uh, um, so what we're doing, like for the for the trend following s slice of it, is is what we do is we have we have three core lookbacks, and we're trying to get confirmation on these lookbacks. Uh, so we'll look back maybe on the first parameter anywhere from 100 to 200 days, and then there's a threshold that that market either has to be above or below in order to take a buy or sell. Then there's a medium term. Uh, look back with another separate threshold. Uh, so we need confirmations on all three uh, three lookbacks in order to go to the next level. So the next level would be once we get confirmation that let's say the long-term lookback, medium-term, and short-term lookback are confirming that there's direction uh, upside directional movement, then we have a a volatility filter and basically that's looking at current vol and comparing to past vol and if it's over a certain threshold we don't take the trade at all if it's under it we're allowed to take the trade and then we have a little volatility move that must happen from the previous close it has to move in the direction of that trend in order for us to put that trend on so we have two of the two systems 
that have that same core logic, but in research, the way we the way we make those systems different from each other is we pair each of our systems with a unique super value. Uh, and that super value gives that system uh, direction on how we want that system to contribute to the portfolio. So an example of a super value for our shorter term systems, we'll pair a sharp ratio with a accelerated return numerator. And that will allow that system to be, it, it, it creates a shorter term system. And it also uh, is a more nimble system. So it's responding fast. So when versus, the super, super value is uh, higher, you're gonna get a, you're more likely to get a trade there or you're gonna trade it a little larger? Well, it's, it basically is using that super value across all that market data to have to fit those parameters uh, genetically have to be, we populate each year new parameters for this core logic. Mm. So it gives, it gives that system a roadmap to how we want it to perform. We want it to be really, um, you know, a, a real good risk adjusted return from that system versus those same core parameters on our longer term trend following system, we might pair that to a, uh, a return and a Sortino. And then that system becomes way more accepting of volatility and becomes a much longer term system. So each one of our systems has a unique mathematical super value and it's, it tends to be weighted to, to the, uh, to, closer to the most recent data, you know, so yeah. there might be a sharp over 10 years uh, times a, you know, a return numerator over two years. And so during that optimization process, that's how these, these systems get new parameters. There's no wholesale changing in the parameters, but, and the parameters would be, okay, the first look back, maybe it was 150 days look back, but next year it might be 180 day look back. And the parameter uh, that indicates it's trending could, could move as well. So we're yeah. optimizing to get those parameters, which make the, the systems quite different from each other. And that's all machine learning, AI based, or you run that Did every it. year, hit a button, or is it ongoing? Is it like a rolling 12 month process? Oh no! It's uh, that the reoptimization is a, an annual process, um, okay. and the genetic algorithms take place. So the you're basically populating the the strongest gene in in each parameter. Yeah, hit um, on that a little. Why do you call it genetic um, algorithms? Because what it is doing is it's learning over time uh, through our genetic algorithm. It's learning what the the, the best gene or parameter that is yeah. that will go to the next generation. So as we do a forward walk, um, every time we will, so a forward walk is basically, uh, we don't just optimize a system to the whole set of data from 1980, let's say until present. Yeah. We, we walk through that optimization. So, so for example, we'll, We'll back test from 
1980 to 1985, we'll come up with the core logic of a system. And in the sixth year, we trade those that core logic in that. So we're trading out of sample. We're yeah. building an out of sample track record, basically what we're forced to do in real life as a manager. Much and, easier and so, if, you, if you could trade in sample. Not possible. Not possible without the time machine. Yeah. So, so basically, um, each each time we hypothetically have to trade trade those new parameters on data that we aren't privy to just yet. um, That's that. It's those parameters are like get populated. So those are the best parameters, and every time we do do a, a rolling optimization. The genetics of what comes to the top is the best parameters uh, keeps on moving along. So um, that's across that's the, each of those each of those time frames, each of those systems. Yes, so it'll change yes. it on the longer term, on the shorter term. And then is that changing the portfolio construction as well, or that's static? Or you might add them over time, but it's not the machine learning's not saying, and you should add carbon credits or something. Right. No, we would we would have to just include that data into our optimizations in order to, you know, add markets. Uh, I love it. And so what is have you ever seen? What's that? When is that period? Are you allowed to say? And like, does it work really well right after the period and start to degrade? So you have to switch it over. Are you asking uh, when's the period where we add a new market in? No, when you re-optimize, basically. So if you do it annually, you said, or periodically, but. Yeah, so we have four systems in classic. And so we we have a set calendar date for each one of them. So it's, we don't do all four of them at the same time. So we might, you know, one each each quarter mm-hmm. uh, is, is when we optimize them. And but and I've we, used to, over the years, like five years ago, did it take three years to degrade? Now it takes one year. Does it degrade at all? Or you just find the next, the new best one? Um, the, the, the part of re-optimizing, um, is, is basically so we don't degrade. degrade. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's creating parameters and really looking forward, uh, more than backwards. Basically we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, understand what's, what are the changes in the market? Do you ever do that? Uh, look at the one that if you'd kept it? Just to drive yourself crazy, or no? just take take the new one and ignore what happens. No, we we definitely do. We look we we look backwards and 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 see what changes have been made. Um, the the best thing about you know back fifteen years ago, we would run an optimization and see what moved, what parameters moved, and then try to hone in on like. Uh, you know, a, a range. So for example, the first look back is anywhere from a hundred to 200 days. We would, we would like put a low look back and a high look back and have to optimize within that range. But now when we do genetic optimizations, we can just let everything, we don't have to put like ranges on, on these optimizations. We could just open up the, the parameters as, as wide as we want and just let, let let those parameters get populated, you know, from a natural selection process. 
And how crazy could that be? So could it jump from 50 days to 550 or something? Or there's still some guardrails no, on it? Yeah, no, they never, we never get wholesale changes, mostly because we're optimizing the systems to that specific unique, uh, you know, sharp ratio, basically. Yeah. Um, um, the super value is always geared towards, so it always wants to, it always wants to stay within its, you know, it's, you know, longer term parameters, shorter term parameters. Um, and that's kind of like the beauty of it. We know what kind of contribution each one of our systems is going to give us. I mean, obviously over time we can look back and go, geez, if we only, traded the momentum system, the one momentum system, we would have been doing way better, but we, we want the diversification within the systems because they all go in and out of favor, just like markets go in and out of favor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just want to be around for that. Um, and speaking of that over time and in and out of favor, like what does the model today look like in terms of what it was in 85, 95, 05, 15, right? So like, is it, 50% the same, 5% the same. What, what does that evolution look like? Well, I, I, I would say it's, it's more like 5% the same. Yeah. Um, these, these models are a lot more, you know, sophisticated models. Back in the day when, you know, Liz started the firm, it, it was a, it was one, it was one system and, and one risk management like strategy uh, that overlaid the portfolio with very little components to them. Now we have multiple systems. Uh, each system has, you know, multiple core logic to it. Um, you know, probably one of the most important things we've done is our, so each system has its own uh, risk management to it, where it gets in, where it gets out. But one of the best things that we added to the portfolio was this whole risk overlay and it's it's built with components very similar to our system components and we take that, those components and we run it through an optimization every year so the components would be uh it would be like open trade equity um a trailing p l a scale factor and so what we see what, what happens in in classic is we optimize those core parameters to a utility function and a utility function is really like a, like a satisfaction, you know, how much are you willing to make and how much are you willing to give back uh, on that? So we'll see in big periods of time when, when EMC is making money and that trailing PL builds up, it, once it gets past the scale factor, we start lightening up the portfolio across the entire portfolio and we can like get to a point where we're cut back in classic, you know, 50% because the trailing P and L has really kicked in. And, and, you know, this is something that our clients have really noticed over the past, you know, 10 years or so. We, we implemented this in 2007 and then we have continue re-optimize it every year um, and add more, you know, more components to it. Uh, but 
what happens is there's, you know, you, you've been around this space for a long time. You see huge months that CTAs all do really well. Yeah. And like the next month, it's given all back. This component really helps us, uh, you know, retain the, you know, the P&L. Yeah. Um, it lowers our volatility. It lowers our drawdowns. Um, and it helps us capture more of the, more of the trade. Does it take you, right? Does it like move you less positive skew? Like, a, so I can see where you're coming from, right? That's the number one complaint about trend following. Great. It, but I made, you know, I rode crude from $30 up to 90 and then it sold back down and I didn't get out till it went back to 50. And people like you and me are like, hey, you still made 30 to 50. That's a great trade. But the right. investor's like, well, I had to report that loss from 70 down to 50. And it was it was painful to report to my end investors or to my family office or whatever. So that yeah. your utility factor is solving for that. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's like a, a transformation function. And so what it what it basically does is it's it's looking at it's like ranking monthly returns uh, using an arc tangent. So basically what it's doing is when you're looking back at, uh, you know, your, your research and you're looking back at your monthly returns, it's going to, um, it's going to reward a better negative return to so an improved negative return more than it will reward mm. a, an improvement in a positive return, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, so yeah. you really, it's like a satisfaction thing. So, you, you know, we would go to our clients and go, Hey, you know, would you rather us, you know, make 25% or 20% and only have, a, you know, a couple percent, you know, give back uh, a, a satisfaction. How much is enough? Uh, right. So, it ties. so did you do that with an eye towards the behavioral finance, right? Like that's a famous testing of like, would you rather, you know, make a hundred dollars or lose, well, I can't remember what the math is, right? The famous experiment, but people would rather avoid the loss than get the gain, even if it's economically in their favor to go for the larger gain. They want to avoid that's the loss. That's exactly right. It, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that was what that concept was put in place for the utility function. Um, Which is weird, right? Because in, in your lab, in the scientist's lab, you'd be like, who cares what the investor thinks? Just I'm making the best product possible, right? And then that kind of goes into like full Kelly betting and all that stuff, right? Of like, well, the best product possible might be I fully run this thing at 80 vol and I have drawdown, <laughs> right? And I have drawdowns of 80%, but over 30 years, I compound the highest. Great in the classroom, not so great for real world and real investors, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but that also leads me to like, do you, so how much of that do you give up? Do you give up some of these, right? You're not, you're in that scenario, you're probably never going to have the hundred percent return or like the huge outlier move. In a yeah. Year. I mean, it would, it, you know, it was in place during 08, um, you know, and we had, we had a really big year in classic, uh, in 08, uh, even yeah. though we scale that portfolio dramatically, um, you know, so let's say, you know, if we, if we made 50% in 08, we probably left 20%, you know, further in return on the table, probably. I mean, it's, yeah. we're cutting that thing pretty, 
pretty dramatically. And we don't just do like all of a sudden a 50% cut. It's like, as that P&L builds, we're, we're doing a 5%, 10% cut. And, uh, you know, eventually when that P&L stops building, we stop cutting. Uh, but it's across the whole board, you know, we've had so many different, um, different strategies to reduce that give back. And, you know, one of them was just look at the market that's trending and making money, cut that. But that's a bad idea. It's a terribly bad idea. Yeah, you know, so I was just going to ask next, right? So that's on the portfolio level. That's correct. And so it's going to be, and does it look at each month? So if I, if my best three month return in the historically was 40% and now I'm at 38, it's going to start peeling back? Um, it's, uh, it's actually different than that. It's if, if let's say we, we have a trailing P and L over X days that gets above, let's say 9%. So once the trailing gets above 9% and it goes to 10%, we, we have a little scale factor that's built in. So what it really does is, um, if we have an open, uh, open equity, we don't trade in our in our classic strategy. We don't trade that open uh, trade yeah. equity. So the scale factor is just using a multiplier against that open trade equity. So it makes the open trade equity bigger, which makes us take money off off the table, basically. Got it. Right, which is the classic from my days running a trend following. Right, you would hit a big trade in corn. Now, right, say you started with a million dollar portfolio, you make 200 grand in corn. Now, right, open trade equity, now you're at 1.2 million and you get a trade in silver. Do I right. size it off the million or the 1.2 million, right? <laughs> right. And That's inevitably right. you'd size it off the new 1.2 million. Now the corn PL goes away and you lose on silver and you, right, it just increases volatility across the board. That's so, right. That's so right. The, and we, I was just going to say, and, and from a standpoint of sizing trades in the portfolio, we do look at that market's volatility, short-term look at volatility to know how much we want to risk in that market. So each market has its own risk weighting, but then we take in consideration the volatility of that market, the current volatility of that market when we put a position on. So the more volatile the market is, smaller the size and vice versa if if a market's you know doesn't have a lot of volatility something like euro dollars we're able to put on a a, a bigger position right which is classic trend found 101 right like i'm doing 20 euro dollars one palladium and if there's the big outlier move right if it's four standard deviation move i want to make the same amount That's in right. each of those markets i don't want to unknowingly have like most of the portfolios profits because this market's more volatile. And then you said something interesting before of if the volatility is too high, is that in each market or portfolio wide? If the volatility is too high, you're not going to take the trade. So that components within, within the system. Got it. So we've tried to, it's fun. We've, we've really tried to get rid of that parameter and all of yeah. our systems, but it, it, screens out so many bad trades that it we need it at some level each system has maybe a different threshold so some some of our longer term systems are more accepting of expand you know expanded valve 
So yeah. we want to make sure that there's not a trend and just because of volatility, we're not a part of it. So um, that's the diversification within all the systems as well. As my experience as vol when volatility is expanding, 07, 08, right? 2020, 2021, 22 here, that's when trend following does better. Um, but you're, this is saying not just increasing vol, but if it's really high absolute level of vol, you're going to get whipsawed. You're going to get stopped out too soon. That's that right. Yeah. yeah. So on to the other program. So we covered classic. Anything else to add on classic? Um, I could just fill you the, the other types of systems yeah, yeah. that okay. we have is the statistical momentum systems. And so those are quite different than having confirmation on, on, on three levels, like the technical trend following. So the statistical uh, momentums are basically, we're looking at a shorter look back period of time. It's, we're, it's all time weighted to the present. And the, one of the systems is looking at a close to close basis. And so we do this analysis where we're looking at today's close versus yesterday's close versus the day before it closed. And, and we walk back and forth this, what we call count against. So we're looking for uh, closes in a, in a certain direction and a lack of closes in the opposite direction. So almost like you would look at uh, a manager where he, where you have you have a a run up, and then you, you just want to make sure within that run up you don't have like these drawdowns, these big drawdowns. So a lack of you know a lack of counter closes uh, will allow us to put that that momentum trade on. And then our longest term system is more of a looking at a shorter term look at the market, but really looking at the drift and the magnitude of the drift. So that would be a market that, you know, if you looked at a chart, you just like, you, you know, you go, oh, it's, you know, it's definitely going higher, um, but it kind of measures that on a short term. Uh, so the system, you know, is more accepting of, of volatility and it, it allows this trade to get put on like awfully fast. Um, over the last five years, that longer-term system has been the momentum. Longer-term system has been our most successful system in the portfolio. But all four systems we equally weigh just for diversification, and, and you know we we want to just make sure that we are uh, you know we're not making changes just because of the results of our optimization. Which is weird, right? Because you're like, we're going to do optimization and this, these, this parameter set we think gives us the best chance, but then at the same time sort of ignoring optimization there on that, on that level. So it's an interesting yeah. yin and yang there of like, okay, I'm optimizing, but not over-optimizing. Right, right. That's, that's critical in our research process. I mean, because it is really easy to say, oh, this system works great with this market and this system works good with you know, another market. So trade just those systems for those markets. That's just a real overfit strategy then. What we do is we equally weigh all of our systems across all of our markets. So once we run an optimization and come up with parameters 
for let's say our short-term trend following system, those parameters that we come up with, we trade every market with those same parameters. So we're trying to build a robust set of systems that trades successfully in sugar as it would in Euro dollars, as it would in S and P's. Um, so we're not customizing the, the systems to each individual market or to each sector. Which comes back to the silver comment, right? So even, even to the point where you would add something that's lost 26 times in a row and no one in their right mind would ever trade on a standalone basis, right? Right, right. Um, which is crazy, but that's the power. Coming back, it's interesting to me, right? Always the momentum factors usually talked about in stocks, right? Single name stocks, not really in futures markets where we tend to call it trend. So like for you, what do those correlations look like? Are those models 0 0.8, 0 0.9 correlated or they, you'll see much different trades? Yeah, uh, they're they're they still have a high correlation. Yeah, um, because just like CTAs, trend following CTAs have high correlations because we're trying to chase the same yeah. outlier moves, and so that just moves the correlations, you know, up pretty high because we want all these systems to be able to capture trend or you know uh, momentum type moves. Uh, right, I guess so. The, the correlations would probably be, you know between our longest term system and our shorter term system, that would probably be the lowest correlation. Um, so the longer term system goes out to about 120 some days, hold, average holding period. And the shorter one's more like a 15 day. So there's plenty of times where those systems are actually on the opposite side of the market. So one could be short and one could be still be long. Um, so, you know, that'd probably be more like a 0.6 correlation with each yeah. other. I guess another way to ask it, like you're capturing the momentum factor, even in the trend model, right? Like, is that the scientific explanation for why, why these things can work over time? Yeah, I would say yes. So circling back, so you guys have a few other programs. So let's talk through those quickly. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. So the, the other programs that we have, um, it, the first one we call EMC Alpha, and we really custom built this program uh, for a client of ours uh, who wanted to start a 1940 Act mutual fund, uh, which is a game changer in our business. Um, you know, basically, if people wanted to invest in our programs, it was typically if we had a fund vehicle, then they could come in for a lower threshold. But if they just wanted to do a managed account, in classic, the minimum was $5 million managed account. So there's not a lot of guys who have, you know, a 5 million that represents a small uh, portion of their total yeah. assets. Um, so now this mutual fund structure is a complete different game changer. Number one, you you, you basically have a lower threshold in order to get into this alternative investment. And you have, you know, hundreds of brokers selling this to their clients versus, you know, one sales guy or two sales guys, you know, pitching it. So we're the sub advisor to the, this, this program called the alpha program. And 
where it differs from classic is we have we have 10 systems in the in the portfolio and then we have sub strategies four sub strategies uh, one of the sub strategies is just short-term interest rates we call it unconstrained rates uh, we optimize a few systems to that core strategy so that differs a lot from what we do in classic whereas we're customizing systems to certain sub strategies and then we have a commodity only sub strategy that we optimize core systems to and then we have a long short global financial which is basically currencies fixed income stock indices and uh it, we optimize uh, some more trend momentum systems to those sub strategies using different super values as well um, and then the very final Substrategy is a long-only rebalanced substrategy of stocks, bonds, and gold, and that really helps smooth out the, the managed futures-like yep. returns. Um, so, but the the fixed income and the stocks they can all get like they can all get flat and can get short. So right now in that strategy. We are, we are short fixed income. Well, there's the long, there's a long only bucket, but then there's also the dynamic bucket that could go. So yeah, it might be long in the long only and short in the dynamic the, net. Correct. Got it. Yeah. Um, oh. And how do you so do that, that? That's like to give you basically a positive carry that will keep you above water until the kind of alternative piece pays out, or do you view it as? the give you positive beta with protection via the alternative piece. Yeah. I mean, it, quite honestly, the whole idea, of the, yeah, the whole idea of this portfolio is we always, you know, when we just had classic, we always said, you know, you want to combine this product with your other, you know, your other holdings. And that's usually long stocks, long bonds, yeah. uh, long gold. And so, um, you know, it was, that's, that's a hard sell because when a, when a investor invests in the classic program, he doesn't look at it as a combined investment with his, you know, their current investments, their long investments, he totally looks at it separate. So sometimes, you know, we go through periods where they're not great, they're not great periods. And so right, line um, item risk, we call that, right? Like yeah, just sick so we, of seeing that line item when, if you bundled it, it's like, Oh. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, so we just decided that you know it's hard to sell people on just the standalone. Um, so why don't we build like a portfolio that's you know it's more balanced uh, uh, yeah. as as just a you know a complete uh, investment. So what's interesting is uh, that. Mutual fund started out with five million in 2013. It's it's over 500 million now, um, and really where they're selling that that product uh, is is basically to uh, brokers uh, fixed income sleeves. They started out selling it to like it, it, these these uh, managed futures and then yeah yeah managed futures or even in, you know, someone's stock bucket. Yeah. Now where the big 
attraction is happening is bond replacement income. Yeah. Interesting. So it's um, shooting more towards single digit returns with single digit volatility. Um, very different than what classic uh, shoots for. Uh, and then what else? Other programs? And then we have we have another carve out within that EMC Alpha program that's in the mutual fund. We also trade ETF uh, ETFs in that in that portfolio. We have an EMC uh, Alpha Plus strategy, which is a levered up version from that Alpha strategy, and it's all futures, no no ETFs in that portfolio. So it's it's very similar. We built it very similar to Alpha. It's just a levered up version of, of that. Jumping around a little bit here, we touched a little bit on the um, AI machine learning. Uh, just give us a little bit of like, what's your take on all that? Indispensable to you? Should have done it sooner. It's just a fancy spreadsheet. What What's your take on how you guys use the machine learning and, and how you value it? Yeah, I, I mean, we really value it a lot because it's um, it's an it's an automated research process for us now. I mean, we used to set, sit at a, at a conference table, everyone in the management group and just, you know, uh, spitball, spitball, just <laughs> figure out what change in the system. Is it good? Should we allow it to change by that much? This is a natural selection process um, that, you know, coming to these conclusions, we're able to come to them a lot faster because of the genetic optimization that's happening. There's a lot of different interpretations of artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there's, you know, artificial intelligence where people just throw a whole bunch of parameters, you know, into the, into the code and let it try to figure out what's the best parameters. We don't do it that way. We basically have core lot logical parameters and then we're directing these systems to get the best parameters within that core logic. So it's quite different than some of the artificial intelligence. We've had. Yeah, I think I view it as like outsourced manpower, woman power, right? Like you're just instead of a room full of a thousand people crunching through all this, you have the machine do the work. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so uh, we really believe in it from not only from a, a system building idea, but also from that overlay risk management. Uh, that's really, that's really helped us uh, outperform a lot of our peers, especially in good times. That's easier to tell investors about too, instead of like, well, I don't know why we went long that, but the AI did it. <laughs> yeah. It seems right. to have worked over time. And the classic AI, right. is like going to optimize to what's working over this, X period where you've kind of said like, no, we're going to have discipline. And even if something's not working in that period, we believe in it philosophically and we're going to keep, keep it in the portfolio. Right. Right. Yeah. We look at the whole portfolio, at, you know, when we run these optimizations, we're not, we're not just singling out markets. We will, we will take some outlier performance in our back test and remove those markets so they don't skew our, our results by too much. Like if, you know, if the, the central bank, you know, uh, devalued their currency or whatever, and that had a huge move, like way back uh, when Mexico uh, 
had their big devaluation, it really spiked our our P&L. And so we kind of take some of that noise out just so it doesn't skew the, the results. Take out the largest loser too. I'm thinking of the Olympics here. The uh, largest loser, largest winner, score judge scores get thrown out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just some of the ones that can really skew. If trend following starts to go really back in vogue here, right? It's had a great 21. It's doing great so far this year. If hundreds of millions of billions start flowing back into the space, do you have any reservations that it gets too big, that that'll degrade the, the core signal there? What are your thoughts on the old trend following's too big angle that was prevalent yeah. five, six years ago? Yeah, I, you know, I, I personally, um, you know, it's, I think you can get skewed when, you know, if you look at, if you look at the 40 years that the bond market has been, you know, has gone up and you, you customize your, your strategy to have a long bias or you customize it to, you know, have a long bias in stocks. I think that, that could definitely hurt, you know, uh, you know, if, you, if people have, have adjusted their strategies to um, to that past market environment, I think then it could terribly degrade. Um, but from our standpoint, we we build the same parameters that get you in a long trade are the same parameters that get you in a short trade, and then shorter versions of those parameters get us out of those positions. Uh, so shorter lookbacks uh, and thresholds get us out of the position. So I, you know, I personally don't believe in, in like, you know, that the more money that comes in, you know, the, the less success we're going to have. Um, we would mm-hmm. have to probably weigh certain markets like lumber and orange juice and some of those smaller contracts, we probably have to uh, weigh them too low to actually participate in them. But at this point right now, they are lightweights, but they, we can still trade those markets and it have them add value. When asked another way, what would you have to see in order to be like, this has gotten crazy. Like these, as soon as there's a breakout, the thing spikes this much, we're not able to get in soon enough. Right. Like what kind of things would you have to see to be like, there's too much money chasing these trends, which is a, a odd question in and of itself. Cause what time frame is it on a 10 day time frame, a hundred day or 200 day. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we would definitely have to, you know, obviously if we have to look at slippage, you know, type effects, um, we'd have to look at all our custom algos that we, we built for putting trades on, We'd have to look at our market weights. There, there'd be several things, you know, if we start seeing, you know, moves that we you know, can't get in in time and can't get out in time. Um, we hope that through our optimization process that those parameters will all adjust to that current environment. Right. So right. my my counter argument would be get the more the merrier that's going to drive more liquidity, more people into the market. And if your models are, are better than the next guys, there could be opportunity there. Right? Opportunity. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, and so you mentioned everything being the same on the long side and the short side. The bond trade we've talked about, right? So bonds basically went uh, straight up, rates down for 30, 40 years. Um, two things there. One, back in the day, everyone said managed futures returns were juiced because they could hold T-bills, but we'll ignore that for now. But just, right, if they were a, a participant in that huge 30-year bond trend, now, simplistically, we can say, oh, if that reverses, if rates go back to 15%, whatever, there's going to be a huge downtrend in bond prices, rates up. But um, Roy Niederhofer, some others have pointed out, like, that won't look the same because of the cost of carry, because the curve will be different. So you, what are your thoughts on, on the rates up, bond prices down? Is that going to be a mirror effect? What's it going to look like for, for your programs and managed futures in particular? Yeah, I mean, we trade we trade across, you know, the whole curve. So, we, you know, we're trading short-term interest rate products. We're trading medium-term. We're trading long-term products. And so we're obviously, we built these systems based on, on the data that we, you know, that we had, which was really skewed to the upside, um, you know, but for, for, for us in particular, I think, you know, I'm, we don't really look at it. Can, is it going to be a different type of trend? We're just trying to capture directional price movement. So, I mean, the, the amount of P and L we've already picked up in the Euro dollars um, over yeah. the last, you know, couple of years signals. It's a, it, it's, it's a, pretty good trend right now. I mean, almost better than uh, the, the amount we picked up on the upside. So, it, you know, it all depends. I, I think it depends on the volatility of the market. It doesn't, you know, Euro dollars, the vol has just picked up big time in there. So um, our strategies could miss if they get screened up by vol, but we got in so, so early that all of our systems are already positioned. Um, in those markets. So, um, you know, they could be right that, you know, this is going to be a different type trend, but, um, you know, we, we basically are just building models that, that catch, you know, try to catch outlier moves and however big that is, it is. I mean, uh, we're hoping that our, our risk management overlay, you know, ends up capturing, you know, scaling back when we do capture these moves and you know like right now we're we have a pretty decent scale going on in the classic program so if those euro dollars reverse uh, we're going to capture yeah. a, big, a big piece of that already what's it sounds to me like you're saying like yeah maybe that trend looks totally different you're not going to make as much as you made on the way up but unless you set your whole model up as like, that's the main factor, right? That you wanted, that your whole performance is based on it looking exactly the same, right? If, if you don't do that, then it's not necessarily a problem. You're just going to get what you get and, and have a nice day and move on to the next one. Right. I mean, look, uh, I, I think probably most investors didn't think that uh, interest rates could, you know, could go negative and, right. uh, um, and could have, you know, put into their models, don't, you know, you can't, you know, you can't buy bonds when the rate is, you know, under a percent or whatever. And, you know, 
Yeah, we've talked about that before, but what do you do with bonds at the zero bound and why would you go long there? There's no more room to go. But yeah. Yeah, 2019 was it, right? Where there was tons of made money made in uh, boons and bubbles and all that German stuff of going long at the zero bound and it, right? Basically it went more negative and you could make money. Yeah, I mean, and the only data that supported, uh, you know, was prior to this all happening was Japan, you know, the Euro yen, the, the rates, the rates went negative and the volatility just completely died out. So it was almost like a flat line movement on a chart. Um, what we did as a manager, just, you know, not being in that type of environment before is we just, we just lowered our risk. Yeah. our market risk in there because obviously with no vol no ranges we would be putting on massive positions based on the volatility of that market which is a very dangerous thing to do so we we pretty much cut the leverage in that market that's sort of like a that's definitely a discretionary move when it comes to uh you know our research uh, but we just felt that you know without any data supporting what could happen here that we'd uh, uh, we'd be best off protecting ourselves. Love it. Um, and then let's talk to, we mentioned lumber a little bit. Um, we just had a pod a couple of weeks ago on lumber talking about the supply chain issues, the beetles because of climate change, all this stuff. So it's always amazes me, right? Like no offense, but you don't know anything about all that stuff. Exactly. Yet, right. But you might say, oh, no offense taken. I love being able to make money off something that I, I know nothing about. Right. So to me, it's like a feather in the cap of trend building. Like you would need an army of analysts and all this exposure to be like, I'm, I researched all these lumber. I bought into this lumber mill that's publicly traded or I bought this timber. Right. And here it's just part of the portfolio and you get that exposure in a measured way. Um, and it's like, you know, it's a long call option on things like that happening. Right. Yeah, that's right. It, you know, it's you're right. I mean, even if you you think you got all the fundamental reasons for, you know, what a market sh is going to do or what it should do, sometimes you know the markets completely go the opposite direction, and and you know you put your hands up like you know why? Yeah. I, I'm you know that's the greatest thing about the disciplines of being a you know trend follow systematic managers you don't have to you don't have to know why don't have to know why uh, and then something another one carbon credits are they part of the portfolio yet what are your thoughts on that like to me i think it's it's a weird thing to think about right because by definition they should go up they reset plus 15 percent a year or whatever so it would seem to be a perfect thing for a trend following portfolio um, yeah, we do not have it in any of our portfolios right now, and we don't. We also don't have like a Bitcoin in our in our portfolio as well. Um, there's a couple reasons for it. From a standpoint of the mutual fund, um, the the, um, the 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 oversight uh, of that uh, distribution of the mutual fund, they disallow it. Yeah. to being in, in our portfolio. So that one program can't have that. Um, 
And then we've, you know, we've gone in front of, you know, several of our investors in the past to add the VIX or to, um, you know, some other markets. And uh, they don't, they don't tell us we can't, but, um, you know, we just sort of look at some of the, the returns from some of those markets and we've, we feel like it's a little bit of a dangerous move to get in, especially the VIX. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you think, where you think you're going to get out and where you do get out of some of those markets is not, you know, is, is not the same. So, uh, you know, we're staying away from some of those markets. Um, we still have a lot of diversification in our portfolio, um, you know, between the, commodities and financials and currencies. And the crypto always seems like a perfect fit for a trend bar, right? Like just take a little bit of risk and you're going to get some of these outlier moves and rinse and repaint, have the ability to go short. Um, so I'm sure you guys will revisit that down the line. As Absolutely. The, yeah. As the futures become more entrenched too and the liquidity gets better. Let's finish it up with two truths and a lie. It's new this year. Um, what do you got? Three three things about you, one of which is a bit of a stretch. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good golfer. Good golfer. Good at these podcasts. <laughs> You're making it tough now. And three, that you're not God and the sun beaming down from behind you there is um, just the normal sun. Can you see that on your screen? The sun's like. Oh, yeah. Um, No, I, you know, honestly, uh, you know, I think I'm good at what I do here at EMC uh, from a standpoint of, of keeping you know, the philosophy of, of what we do uh, from a research standpoint and, you know, managing the company, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I mean, I, I surround myself with some very brilliant people at the company here who've been with us for, for, you know, several decades. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I'm loyal to them. That's Liz was very loyal to, to me. Um, I'm loyal to them. I, you know, I, I pay them what they're worth because, um, because I want them to stick around here. Um, yeah. Teach them well enough to leave and pay them well enough that they won't want to. I think that's how the, that's right. That's how the line goes. Right. That's right. Um, well, thanks John. Any other last thoughts before we let you go? Tell them where they can find you and all that good stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, you can find us at www.emccta.com. Emccta.com. Cool. And then we're doing a white paper on trend following, which you guys will be highlighted a little bit in. So check that out. And um, thanks for listening. Thanks, John. Hey, thank you. Fun. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. 
and be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.